in the context of the common law, the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, by Bostan M. Supancic. Good evening. I'm very grateful for having been invited to give this prestigious lecture at this prestigious um, institution. Um, one thing I would add, because it bears upon the meaning of the lecture, is that I was a law professor in the States for many years. Uh, so I, I'm familiar with the common law uh, workings, uh, at least in that context, not in the English context. Uh, without further ado, we can move on. Okay, this is the title of the lecture. And when I wrote that, um, when, I pre when I wrote the title of the lecture, I had no idea this is going to be so topical because, because of Brexit at that time, it wasn't clear that it's going to be a uh, hot issue uh, as it is now. But let's go step by step. Um, this is my good friend and a respected judge and former president from, from Great Britain, Sir Nicholas Bratza, who has served on the court even before 1998 because he was a commission member before becoming a judge. And uh, he, was, uh, he was an excellent uh, president of the section and later vice president and president of the court, somebody to be proud of. Um, this is the starting point for the, for the whole lecture, is that you have two principal modes of legal reasoning. The dis distinction between the continental uh, law and legal theory and the common law and legal theory is the mode of thinking, as we shall see, mode of legal reasoning. Um, continental law, for those of you who know we have heard about it or know a little bit about it, is abstract in its anticipation of uh, problems. In other words, it's happening here as well. It's happening in the States as well. The legislature will write a particular law anticipating particular problems, uh, particular criteria of resolution of conflicts. So it's written in advance. In common law jurisdictions, there is much legislative lawmaking, uh, and a very good example of this is model penal code in the US. Uh, it's an excellent uh, legislation, but it's done the way things are done in the continental law. It's not, it's not judge-made law. Um, but uh, if you go back in history, um, the Emperor Justinian's uh, code from five, 534, is, is a collection of judicial, um, judicial pronouncements, judicial resolution of different legal problems uh, put in a code. In other words, people think Roman law is a codification. No, Roman law is not a codification. It's just a collection. Uh, Justinian's code is just a collection of previous attempts for, from previous judges, praetor, uh, etc., to, to resolve particular problems. Um, so, we're talking about legislative lawmaking, but in the common law situation context, we're talking about the power of the judges. By the way, Justinian didn't want the judges to have that particular power. This was one of the reasons why the restatement of the Roman law was made uh, and in order to take that power away from the judges, so it would be, it would be pronounced as a restatement in advance, so the judges would be bound by particular rules collected in the, in the Roman law codification, uh, the common law. Uh, it is, of course, judge-made law insofar as it is. Even today, judge-made law here in the States, in all Anglo-Saxon, as the French would say, uh, jurisdictions. Um, and the big question, at least in the States, is do the judges create the law by pronouncing on, in particular cases, or do they discover it? We shall see that uh, the question is slightly uh, it's subtle, really, but, uh, but mostly, mostly it gets to be quite simple. In the Roman law, the judge, Praetor was his name, simply discovered the logical, which is the same thing as just solution of the already existing problem. We shall see immediately what that means. Uh, this is Justinian, who produced that code between 529 and, and 524. 
and uh, it's being used everywhere. The, the Scottish law, I'm told, for some extent, to some extent is based on Roman law. And of course, the, all the continental jurisdictions are supposed to be based on Roman law. But the story is more complex than that, because um, the Roman law was rediscovered in the, in the um, well, 15th century, for example, um, where the, when the commercial interests became pervasive in the then Europe, and therefore, there had to be rules of how to deal with these particular questions. So Roman law immediately became very interesting, and that's why it was received, as they say, uh, in most continental jurisdictions. Um, this is uh, just, uh, I should say, uh, a caricature of the, of the uh, common law being, being invented. Um, now, even if Henry II already systematized legal customs already accepted in England, this did encourage um, the resort to law courts rather than to violence that had become common in, the, in Stephen's, age, Stephen's age. In other words, this is pretty basic. In a sense, if you don't have the rule of law, if you don't have king's peace, very likely you were going to have an anarchy. In other words, the basic purpose of law is to resolve questions by argument, um, power of, uh, uh, I should say, um, power of the argument rather than the argument of power, uh, which is the rule, I should say, for, 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 for uh, anarchy. As I say, the Americans say, uh, die by the law or live by the gun, which is once you get to that stage, that is already very, very far. Um, you have the law, uh, war of everybody against everybody. Um, and then, this is an interesting example, the Rhodes Law concerning jettison. It's called, in Latin, it's called Lex Redia, Lex Rodia de Actu, and it was invented in order to uh, resolve a particular problem. We shall see what it is. This is one of the Roman merchant ships. Um, that sailing around the Mediterranean. And especially in the month of August, September, October, the Mediterranean tends to be very, very uh, choppy, I should say. Very, the winds are very strong. Meltemi, the northeastern winds in Mediterranean, become very violent. And at that time, of course, the galleys that were transporting goods often got into trouble. Uh, and therefore, uh, it, it is provided by the Rhodian law that where merchandise is thrown overboard for the purpose of lightening the ship, to save the ship, what has been lost for the benefit of all must be made up by the contribution of all. In other words, they were transporting all, they were transporting wheat uh, in amphoras, etc. And then, of course, the ship had to be lightened. The stuff had to be thrown overboard in order to save the ship. And in the end, when it came to roads, came to the port, uh, the question was who is going to bear um, the damage, the consequences of the whole jettison. And it's logical, that's why I'm, give that, I'm giving that example. It's logical that those who have lost their cargo are somehow compensated by those whose, car whose cargo was saved. Uh, and so um, this is a good example of how a judge-made law uh, it resolves a logical problem, it's really kind of exposed insurance uh, provision, and, uh, and if it uh, resolves that problem, and if it stays on the book, on the books, then of course it may serve very well in the next similar case. The like cases, as we shall see, should be decided alike. Um, the comparison. Common law, as we said, is reasoning by similarity. That's, this is very important in the, in the light of recent findings about artificial intelligence. Um, we shall see you later what it means. The formula is the like cases should be decided alike, and it's called stare decisis, and really refers to legal certainty. In other words, when the next case comes up in the, in the courts of law, people, the parties to the, to the controversy, expect that decision to be uh, made by the same criteria. It was done, the way it was resolved, 
before, and that's called stare decisis. In the continental law, the reasoning is not by analogy, because when you go, let me see there, when you go to, to uh, the like case, it should be decided alike. The key question is, what is similar to what else? Right? This is called analogy. It goes by similarity, and it looks arbitrary, but it, we see it's not. It goes by similarity, it doesn't go by syllogism. In the continental system, you have uh, the upper premise in the logical syllogism, you have the facts, the upper premise, the major premise is the norm. The facts are um, whatever is found in a particular case of the problem. And then the solution of that uh, is, is, is the solution of that is the, the conclusion of the logical syllogism. Uh, that logical syllogism has for its major premise, uh, uh, of course, the norm pronounced, promulgated by the legislature. Um, and in the end, the conclusion at bottom, on, the, on your right-hand side, uh, the conclusion is, is guilty, innocent, uh, has to pay damages, doesn't have to pay damages, etc. Um, then, this is another difference between the common law. The common law is typically English in its inductive reasoning, you know, Francis Bacon, etc. Uh, in other words, empirical, concrete, it is incremental, it, goes, it grows case by case. Um, it's not made in the bulk like the continental legislation. It's a case by case problem solving and it's done by judges. And the judges are bound, as we said, by the formula that the like cases should be decided like. In the continental law, as I pointed out before, on the right hand side, uh, the reasoning is deductive. Uh, it's the norm pronounced by the legislature is abstract. Um, it is often pronounced uh, in a in a, on a promulgated code or a promulgated law which has many, many major premises, many norms to, to, to use. Um, it is done by legislative fiat. In other words, it's not a question of resolving a particular problem. It is a question of the legislative branch of power exercising its, uh, its, exercising its uh, prerogative of uh, being a legislator. And then, it, of course, it's influenced by politicians and bureaucrats. And we should talk about Brexit after that. Uh, um, now we move to the European Convention on Human Rights. It is 57 year old, years old. And its consequence was the European Court of Human Rights, which was established in 1959. Uh, and that's between 1959 and today, it operates full speed, as we see, producing, producing uh, precedents in, 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 in many areas of social life. Um, this is how much the convention actually covers. From Iberia, as they say, from Siberia, from Iceland to Malta, 47 countries. Um, the convention was ratified by all these countries. Uh, but what those ratifying perhaps often don't know is they're not ratifying the convention as such. They are, they are ratifying the jurisdiction of the European court. The convention is very few pages, very few articles enumerating certain human rights, but uh, the jurisdiction of the court, the case law of the court in terms of stare decisis, as we said before, is maybe today, I don't know, two, three meters already, if you look at the books, or if you want to know what it is, uh, how it operates, you could go to Hudok, the famous uh, uh, web page of the court, the search uh, page also, uh, it's many, many, many cases. Uh, the, meager, the, the text of the European Convention of Human Rights is only 5,581 words. It's, as I said, a very short text, uh, 20 pages perhaps. Um, and what is interesting here, here it becomes more interesting, yes, is that the court in Strasbourg started from nothing. They had these 5,581 words in the convention, but other than that, there was no legislation, there was no case law, nobody really knew 
what were the human rights except those uh, simply enumerated in the convention, uh, and the judges had to start from nothing. Uh, I say that tabula rasa, meaning there's no particular um, context in which those decisions would be made. So the judges at that time had to reinvent, so to say, um, human rights in particular cases. Um, now we have accumulated 51,600, by the last count, 673 cases, uh, from nothing to that number. Uh, but of course, not all of these cases are precedents. In principle, cases that are decided uh, by the so-called pilot procedure um, are, are not precedents at all. Um, the cases that are decided by sections are often not precedents at all. They just follow the like cases should be decided the like formula. But the grand chamber cases, uh, the court operates in chambers and in grand chambers, but the grand chamber cases are always, almost always, precedents. You know, the, the famous Hearst judgment concerning the, the voting rights of, of British prisoners was obviously a, a precedent that would be followed in future similar cases. Uh, so in that, in that sense, the court operates by the usual English formula. Uh, and uh, it is not, it is completely atypical of the continental legal context. Yes, as I said, all these judgments are really, were really brought about by the same kind of logic uh, by which through the ages the common law has incrementally grown into a body of law. Um, and um, except that this was done in a very short period, in 57 years. Um, whereas if we go back to the 13th century, of course, uh, the common law had much more time to develop and to grow, as I said, incrementally. Um, Yes, this lawmaking was performed, obviously, by the judges. They vote on a particular issue, but the judgment themselves are prepared by the, by the clerks, in the English way, we would think, uh, the judicial bureaucrats who produce <coughs> particular drafts for particular decisions or try to sum up those debates in the grand chamber, especially, in a particular text, uh, in a particular text of the particular judgment. And then the question is, are all these judgments binding on 47 um, European countries? Well, legally speaking, formally speaking, they aren't. There's a specific provision in the convention that says that the judgment is only going to be binding bet between the parties, between the two parties involved. And one party of those parties is always the state, and the second party is an individual suing the state to, because allegedly his, one of his human rights has been, has been uh, violated. Um, and the convention says it's explicitly, it says the judgments are not valid against everybody. They're just valid uh, between the parties. Inter partes, as they say in Latin, not erga omnes. Um, legally speaking, formally speaking. In reality, of course, everybody knows that the next case that is going to come, come up in the, in, the, in the court is going to be decided by the same kind of criteria uh, as was the case for previous uh, problems. In other words, the standard decides works, but it works not only vertically, it also works horizontally. Uh, a new case from Italy or from Azerbaijan or from Iceland or from Norway that was similar to an English case before will be decided in the same way, ought to be decided, at least in the same way, by analogy. Um, and, and of course, that means that the convention or the cases produced by the court are really binding on everybody, on all 47 states. Uh, the judges. These are the judges of the European Court of Human Rights from 47 different countries. Um, they, these judges work in, as, as unique judges, the, the French say, uh, solo judges, so to say, when they get uh, to dismiss a lot of cases. In fact, about 97% of the cases do get pronounced inadmissible from the beginning. And there is a judge that signs up that uh, particular decision. Then there is a committee 
the judges work in committees of three. In these committees, they decide mostly cases that are well-established case law, as they, as they call it, and they sort of work routinely and, and uh, process a lot of uh, situations um, uh, that are brought to the attention of the court by the, by the applicants. And then, of course, there are chambers composed of seven judges. They're called sections composed of seven judges that decide more meritoriously on a particular uh, issue. And sometimes these chamber judgments do become precedents. And when they do become precedents, they may in fact go to the grand chamber if one of the parties is not happy with the pronouncement of the judgment. Um, so there, there is a, there is a uh, correction built into the convention whereby the grand chamber will, will sometimes, will sometimes uh, disannul the judgments from the, of the chambers. But then again, most of the chamber judgments are uh, being processed uh, routinely by, as I said before, by the, by the similar cases should be decided alike. But these judges are from seven, 47 different countries, from, as I said, Azerbaijan and Georgia uh, and Russia, uh, in Eastern Europe to Iceland in the West, Scandinavian countries, uh, United Kingdom, France, uh, Italy, uh, Malta, and Cyprus. Malta and Cyprus and Ireland, of course, are more interesting in this context because they are common law countries, uh, whereas most of others, all of other countries are not common law countries. They have no idea, in fact, how the common law operates how the like cases should be decided, the like formula actually operates in practice. Uh, um, so UK, Ireland, Malta, and Cyprus, um, the rest of the judges that you have seen have never practiced in the context of the common law. I was an exception in the sense that I have taught in the States for so many years uh, on a case-by-case basis, Socratic method, etc. So I knew better what uh, how to use that reasoning by analogy, but most of the the rest of the judges, including Germans and uh, French, etc. Uh, yes, as far as French are concerned, there is a, perhaps an early link, a little exception. They have um, the jurisprudence; they have the case law valid and binding in the area of administrative law. Um, but most of the rest of the countries have no area where the, common law, where the previous decisions would matter. Now, um, after the establishment of the European Court of Human Rights, uh, there was, well, there were many European constitutional rights which were put into place. Starting with the German constitutional right, the French really don't have one, the German constitutional right, the, the Italian constitutional rights, and then practically all the East European countries. Um, and those constitutional car, uh, uh, courts were in an analogous position compared to the European Court of Human Rights at its beginning, because they all started from nothing. They had the text of the, of the constitution, and then they had to accumulate, the French is called the acquis, uh, have to accumulate the case-by-case um, -case wealth, I should say, of decision-making, and they are bound by their previous uh, decisions, judgments, and they tend, do tend to cite them. They also cite, in many cases, the judgments of the European Court of Human Rights uh, because they know very well, even in Germany, they know very well that if there is an appeal from their uh, decision in the Constitutional Court to the, to the Supreme Court, uh, to the European Court of Human Rights, then they are, they may be, um, Disavoue, how to say, they may be uh, uh, over, their judgments may be overturned, and that, of course, is not very good for the reputation of a particular court. And so they take more and more care now to take into account the case law of the European Court of Human Rights. But that's not my point. My point is that these courts were established across the board in, uh, in, in, in all the countries, practically all the countries except. Um, France and, France and Scandinavian countries, even Malta has a constitutional court. 
Um, and the French, French don't, they have a la cour constitutionnelle, but it's not really a court in the, in the usual sense of the word because they cannot entertain the, the individual applications, the individual complaints. Uh, they can only judge the law once it is being voted upon, but before it is being promulgated to see if there is any problem with that law when, when it uh, becomes uh, fully fledged uh, legislation. Um, the German Constitutional Court, for example, is one of the best in Europe. Uh, the German Constitutional Court decides their cases very conscientiously, uh, and they have, it has a great influence in Eastern Europe, uh, but it works exactly as the European Court of Human Rights. In other words, you can file an individual complaint. It's called Verfassungsbeschwerde in the, in the, in Karlsruhe, in the, in the Constitutional Court, and it will decide um, by its own criteria, by its own old precedents, but also by, in view of the European Court's uh, pronouncements in particular similar situation. The question is, therefore, in terms of Brexit, for example, the question is, to what extent do these judges uh, from different countries, 47 different countries, and to actually understand the logic of analogous legal reasoning, the logic by which the common law traditionally proceeds. I must say one thing. I elaborate on that in my, in my paper that will be distributed at the end of the lecture. I, uh, I must say one thing. Uh, that is that um, the judges from all these countries, surprisingly so, do find a common denominator. There is no, pro there is no problem communication problem between Sir Nicholas Bratz and the judge from Turkey, for example. Somehow the same logic, the legal logic, the legal reasoning is the common denominator by which the judge's discourse is going on. Legal reasoning is to some extent common to all these people, uh, probably deriving from their um, legal uh, education, education in law. Uh, and uh, the understanding, the simple conceptual understanding in the court ought to be a great surprise for, for everybody because these people come from radically different cultures. And in fact, many of the judges, some of the judges from East European court uh, uh, countries are actually, uh, um, were actually judges or at least law professors in the previous communist system. And still, when they come to the court, when the when the, the issues are debated in the the issues are debated in the grand chamber um, and in chambers, they find easily find a common denominator, and therefore the output of the court is not something that would be um, something that would be um, surprising, <clears throat> and it's probably an, an anthropological question. How is it possible that people coming from so many different cultures, they react cross-culturally, I should say, uh, do find a common language by which to um, communicate. But that, I emphasize that, as far as I remember, has never been a problem. Um, yes, the other question is, is do these judges actually understand the judicial restraint? And the opposite of the judicial restraint is judicial activism. And the European Court has been accused, especially so here in the United Kingdom, to be an activist court. Now, in these two terms come from the Supreme Court of the United States, in which some judges are seen as activists, typically Douglas, and some judges are seen as really quite conservative or, or in the bounds of judicial restraint, like the, the Scalia, the, the, the gentleman who just recently died, he was very much uh, a partisan of judicial restraint uh, and was not given ju judicial ac activism. This is one of the dilemmas in this context that, is, that is, uh, should be taken into account. Now, the European court is an activist court. I don't hesitate to say that. Um, the Hearst judgment, for example, was an activist judgment whereby the court uh, decided to 
uh, impose its own view on the question of whether the prisoners should have the right to vote or not. And of course, before that, the prisoners in many countries, in some countries, did not have that right. In other words, the court said, yes, this right does exist, and therefore the countries are bound to implement it in their own legislation. Of course, the, the judgment was focused, was, was directed only vis-a-vis -vis the UK. Uh, but all other countries, knowing full well that the cases might come from their territory to, 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 to Strasbourg, have also, have also, um, were also bound by that judgment. I don't know what the legislative uh, consequences of that have been so far, but in, at any rate, if the case were to come from Russia or from Iceland, I don't care, um, the, the decision of the court would be the same. Um, the addressees. Uh, in the common law jurisdictions, in the US and the UK, etc., the binding power of the precedent trickles down from the Supreme Court to the lower courts. Um, in the States, that's very clear. You have the Supreme Court, and then you have the appellate courts, nine districts, I think, and then you have the district courts, federal, federal judicial pyramid. And the Supreme Court will make a judgment. They only make about 100 judgments a year. And the, the message then trickles down to the appellate courts, and it trickles further down in the pyramid to the district courts, federal district courts. And the system is well adjusted to the idea that everybody uh, in Alabama or in Massachusetts have to follow the rules established or the precedents established by the Supreme Court. Um, and therefore, you have one pyramid and you have one, one tip of the pyramid in this particular country. And the same thing, analogously, should be the case in the United Kingdom. However, in the, Euro in the uh, European Court of Human Rights, it's also the tip of the pyramid. It is somehow the Supreme Court of Europe, but uh, it is a tip of the pyramids above 47 different pyramids. Uh, if the message goes to Iceland or if it goes to Turkey, it is the, the same message will be interpreted, interpreted very differently. It is not the same story because the system is different. So in other words, you have the tip of one, the pyramid in Strasbourg, and then you have 47 pyramids uh, around Europe, and, the, and some of these pyramids are very conscientious in interpreting the doctrine of precedence, in, in, interpreting, um, in interpreting what the judgment in a particular case actually means. Uh, but in some of the cases, um, in some of the cases, in some of the other countries, like, as I said, uh, those countries that don't have the common law jurisdiction, uh, tradition, the case may come and they don't really care about it. And therefore, in other words, if the United Kingdom is upset about a particular judgment coming from Strasbourg, it is because it takes that very seriously. If the system is geared towards digesting the precedents, taking them seriously, and trying to uh, abide by them. But if the same message goes to Azerbaijan, they don't care. They don't have the wherewithal to actually um, process the judgments. And of course, if, that, if a case from Azerbaijan actually does go to Strasbourg, the judgment of violation will be repeated because the Azeri prisoners don't have the right to vote, but that will be about it. The system, is, the system does not feel threatened by the European Court of Human Rights because it really, it doesn't have the means by which it would be uh, it would be possible for it to take the precedents coming from the European Court of Human Rights seriously. Um, in the UK, of course, uh, you have the Human Rights Act, which you probably know better than I do, uh, but in any event, the Human Rights Act from 1998, which is the beginning of the new court as well in Strasbourg, that Human Rights Act is geared towards processing the human rights in the United Kingdom, as well as the judgments coming from Strasbourg. And it's an excellent law if it's seen from the point of view of abiding by the European Convention of the Judgments of the European Court of Human Rights. And now the politicians are speaking about abrogating 
this particular legislation. And of course, that's part and parcel of the possible Brexit uh, uh, eventuality in the near future. Um, as I said, in the rest of the 43 countries, they often do not feel bound by the Strasbourg precedent. Um, because, as I said, they, their tradition doesn't permit them even to consider the judgments as the source of law for a particular country. Um, now we go to Brexit. Uh, should the UK continue to feel bound by the Strasbourg case law? Uh, Brexit really does not apply to the European Convention in its narrower sense. It applies to the European Union. In other words, Brexit is the exit from the European Union. It is not by itself an exit from under the uh, European Convention of Human Rights and the jurisdiction of the European Court of uh, Human Rights in Strasbourg. Um, European Union is 28 countries, and uh, the European Court is, as we said before, covers 47 countries. Um, by the way, um, they are nine, there are 19 countries which are in the Council of Europe and are bound by the Convention, but are not in the European Union. I'm talking everything from, 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 from Russia to Georgia, Moldova, which has been in the news lately, uh, and therefore, for them, the situation is, is I mean, they, they, is, they, they may be a Frexit, they may be the Italexit, they may be the Jurexit, but they cannot be an exit of the Azerbaijan because they have nothing, nowhere to, to uh, they, have, they have nothing to exit from. Um, now, the question, we're coming really to the gist of the lecture. The question is uh, whether it makes sense for UK to exit from the United, uh, European Court of Human Rights jurisdiction. Um, would it be justified? Um, Theresa May said in the, that the Conservative Party would, if re-elected at the 2015 election, unconditionally withdraw from the court, from the European court, and possibly repeal the Human Rights Act here in the UK, if necessary to fix Britain's human rights laws. This is a political statement. It goes back three years. And from what I see in the newspapers, it is still taken seriously. Um, now, the, my skepticism concerning the Brexit from from under the European Convention of Human Rights is that, that the whole continental Europe, including, and of course, mostly in Strasbourg, is actually imitating the common law. As I said before, all the, all the uh, constitutional courts, as well as the European Court of Human Rights, they're actually adopting the mode of common law um, which was not, which was alien to them before. I'll tell you why. Montesquieu, the famous legal, legal theorist, uh, strictly maintained that the uh, judges should not be permitted to make the law. The idea was on separation of powers was that the legislative branch of power would make the laws and the judges will simply be the mouthpieces of the law, les bouches de la loi. Um, the mouthpieces of the law proclaiming what the legislature has in fact pronounced in the abstract, making it more concrete, uh, specific. Um, and that actually means that no judge in that hierarchy, or that pyramid, is bound by the judgments of the superior court. Any judge in in Livorno, in Italy, for example, is not bound by the judgments of the Italian Supreme Court. He can do anything he wants because he cannot be bound by the precedence of coming from the judicial branch of power, not even constitutional court. And we had judgments in Italy, and we have, yes, we had judgments in Italy in complete disregard of not only European Court of Human Rights, but also of their own constitutional court because the doctrine was 
and it's slowly, slowly dying off. The doc doctrine was that the judge he cannot be bound by judicial pronouncements of the law. It can, he can only be bound by the, um, by the legislature. And by implication, it's obvious that the precedence in such a system cannot exist. Um, on the other hand, this has been changing rapidly. Uh, and, and the irony of the whole situation is that the, the, that the common law mode of working is actually becoming the mode of working for the, for the, whole, um, for the whole continental Europe. This is a silent revolution that has been going on in continental Europe uh, for the last 50, 60 years. One part of that is the European court, but the other part, as I said before, are their own constitutional courts, and suddenly the judges are permitted to make, or if you want, to discover the law, which has never been the case before. Um, before, for example, from time to time, the Supreme Court would issue a bulletin of its usual decisions, like it's called judicial practice, in a particular uh, fact patterns, situations, etc. The, the, the Supreme Court would issue a bulletin saying, yes, yes, we have decided such cases, so and so. But it was not bound binding on any of the instances in the lower court for precisely the reason of the separation of powers. Um, and so, when this, as I said, silent revolution has actually uh, abnegated the previous doctrine of separation of powers. The French speak about, about the gouvernement du juge. It's anathema, in the, was anathema in the French system, but suddenly they have, everybody has accepted the judicial pronouncements, the precedents, the law, in fact, coming from Strasbourg or coming from their own constitutional courts. And that is highly unusual. But whether the Brits are aware of that or not, all this is imitation, in imitation of the common law system. The mode of reasoning now by the Constitutional Court of Turkey in Ankara is precisely, ought to be, ideally is precisely the same as the mode of reasoning in the American uh, district courts or, or appellate courts everywhere following the precedent of the Supreme Court. So, uh, so the irony of the Brexit question in this particular context is, I said that many times in the court itself, uh, the irony of the Brexit question in this particular case is that the that the UK has actually uh, abdicated its own cultural, uh, legal, doctrinal, etc., um, tradition and its impact that it has had in the last 60, 70 years on the continental law. And now they sound, they, it's like they would say, you would say, in a sense, they would say, oh, oh. Um, we don't care about the European Court of Human Rights, and therefore the, the Europeans would say, well, the model of our own legal thinking has now been removed from us. Um, and Bratza, uh, Nicholas Bratza, um, he is very much in favor of maintaining the UK presence in Strasbourg, uh, but I, I once I have told him what I have, I'm telling you, now about the prestige of the UK in, in, in Strasbourg, and uh, he didn't think that was very much important right? on the domestic terrain. I don't know, but it, it definitely is a question of prestige, um, the silent prestige, the silent revolution, the silent imitation of the, of the, of the UK tradition uh, that has not been recognized. Um, now, this is, for example, the Russian Constitutional Court. It was established in 1991. Uh, it struggles with its own case law. It struggles with the case law coming from the European Court of Human Rights. But it's struggling exactly in the direction that is so familiar to you, but it's not, not familiar in St. Petersburg uh, or in other European countries. So they engage in this mode of reasoning, which is the precedential mode of reasoning, but whether they are succeeding in it is not very important. What is important is that everybody looks up to the UK because that is where the idea came from. 
Um, the Strasbourg case law is more than an imitation of the common law method. Fair trial as a concept. Uh, in effect, I just read a book by André Mourois. Uh, in effect, since William the Conqueror, uh, endorsing the legal status quo of Edward the Confessor, um, habeas corpus goes back to 1640, the law of evidence, uh, cross-examination of witnesses, the privilege against self-incrimination, the exclusionary rule, etc. cetera. Uh, that stuff did not exist in the European system. In fact, the French, immediately after the revolution, they have introduced the jury as a decision maker in a particular, in a particular criminal case. Uh, the, the lawyers were so able in manipulating the juries left and right that, that, in fact, they had to abandon the idea of a jury system. They still have it in Belgium, for example, but they had abandoned it because they didn't have any law of evidence. Any piece of evidence well, produced by, by the prosecution or by the defense was permitted to reach the ears or the eyes of the jurors. Uh, and there was no filtering. And of course, when you don't have the evidence law as you have it here or in the States, etc., the filtering is, is performed by the judge presiding judge, judge presiding over the trial. But if you don't have that, then the jury is not going to work. Um, so cross-examination of witnesses was a completely foreign context. I'll tell you a little story. I remember we had a, a case from Italy, I think it was Luca v. Italy, that came to one section when I was a greenhorn in the court because a particular defendant in Italy, he was convicted already, did not have the possibility to cross-examine the witnesses against him. And when the case came up, one of the judges, I'm not going to say from which country, but it wasn't an East European country, he said, you know, but in our country, this has never been the, the possibility. I said, yes, but in the, in the convention, you have that particular right to have, uh, to cross-examine the witnesses or to have them cross-examined by by the judge, whatever that means. It's probably a compromise. Uh, but they have never heard of that. The concept of fair trial, for example, uh, also an American story, um, did not exist in Europe. The idea of the fair trial uh, cannot, the, 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 the word fair trial cannot even properly be, in, be, be, be translated. The French talk about procès équitable, which is not exactly the same thing. And the German translation may be a different thing. Um, the privilege against self-incrimination, I have fought tooth and nail to have it established in the European Court, because that happens to be my specialty, um, which is called right to silence in the UK, was not part of the story on the continent at all. Um, and the exclusionary rule still isn't in many cases, where you have the contaminated evidence that was obtained in violation of the, of the certain rules of human rights. Um, ought to be thrown out. But if you don't have a jury, you cannot throw it out in the first place because they, there's no, the judge cannot act as a filter between, between the parties and the jury. He cannot prevent certain evidence from reaching the eyes and the ears of the jury. And therefore, the system in that, percent, in that sense it finds it difficult to function. Um, as I said, the UK is consistent and systematic in applying the Strasbourg case law. Uh, other countries have a more casual attitude towards the binding nature of the precedents. Uh, this is the paradox, because this leads the UK to protest against particular judgments, whereas some other companies are much less concerned about what is happening in Strasbourg. They simply couldn't care, in many cases, couldn't care less. Um, this is a statement by Sir Nicholas looking back at the landmark case in concerning Britain. Few people today would dispute Strasbourg 1978 ruling that the birching of a Manx schoolboy, which is one of the first cases against the UK, as a criminal sanction was unacceptable. Few would contest that the rules on contempt of court in operation at the time of the Teledomit case were unsatisfactory. Or, to, or deny that a journalist's right to protect his sources is a cornerstone of a free press. This is the Saint Nicholas plaidoyer for the for the European Convention system uh, 
Nor does it seem strange in 2011 to suggest that child perpetrators, even the, of the most heinous of offenses, like the Jamie Burger killers, should not be tried in an adult court. Rulings on the legal recognitions of transsexuals and the lifting on the ban of homosexuals in the armed forces, meanwhile, are surely examples of where the domestic UK law was lagging behind societal changes and was brought up to date as the direct consequence of the court's judgment. More recently, the finding that the indefinite retention of DNA samples of persons never convicted of an offense violated the right to private life was widely applauded in the British political and legal circles. Uh, now, the question is, is Brexit from under the European Court's jurisdiction justified? My answer to that conclude is twofold. On the one hand, it seems logical that this is happening here. It could happen also in Ireland, but it doesn't. It could happen in Malta, but it doesn't. It could happen in Cyprus, but it doesn't. But it seems logical that it's happening here because, uh, as we have pointed out, the, the UK common law system tends to take the judicial precedents very, very seriously. Um, and so if it does take them seriously, and it cannot take them not seriously, uh, if it does take them seriously, then the question is, would they abide by judgments produced by 47 different judges from 47 different countries, most of which are, have a less developed uh, uh, system of precedence, or they don't have it at all, um, uh, than the UK? On the other hand, to abandon the European Court of Human Rights, to exit from under Strasbourg jurisdiction, is, in a sense, a very good move, bad move for, for Britain as well, because it's really abandoning its own prestige. It has had for many, many years in Strasbourg and in all the capitals of continental Europe, which this prestige is maybe silently uh, accepted, um, but it nevertheless is, and perhaps the UK is not sufficiently aware of it. Thank you very much. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.